Welcome, friends. This is Voices Amped. I'm Ellie Clark. And I'm Vanessa Becker-Weig. And we are your hosts. It's 2021. To all our listeners, we are so excited that you are joining us on our new podcast journey. Voices Amped is a place for us to generate shared space to crank up the volume on underrepresented voices, stories, and action. Ellie and I are actors, producers, directors, and educators, and we've been making change together for the past eight years through our Arts Meets Activism endeavor, The Girl Project. Our work has opened doors for us to collaborate and partner with some badass people, artists, activists, community organizers. We are so excited to give you, our listeners, the opportunity to be as inspired by them as we are. We love telling people stories. Our guests will be longtime friends and allies, and we can't wait to dig in deep with questions about their work, their art, their successes and setbacks, the habits that make them tick, and how they manage their public and private personas. We will invite them to share some of their work or work that is currently inspiring them. Joining us on the regular will be the Voices Amplified leadership team, Jenny Benavides, Dr. Margaret McGladry, and our editor and intern, Kennedy Johnson. So fellow Ampers, we can't wait to get amped up with you and our incredible guests. And remember, be curious, be courageous, take up space and make some noise. Welcome and thanks for listening. This is Voices Amped. I'm Vanessa Becker-Weig, and I am your host. I'm so excited to introduce you to Ellie Clark. Woo! <laughs> Ellie is an actor and teaching artist. She was born and raised in Lexington, Kentucky. She lived in Manhattan for 10 years after an acting apprenticeship with Actors Theater of Louisville, and now she currently resides in Atlanta, Georgia. We love Georgia right now, especially (laughs) Atlanta. Woohoo! She earned a BFA in theater from the University of Kentucky and an MFA from Ohio State, from Ohio University's professional actor training program. I am so sorry if you are anyone from Ohio and you mistake Ohio University for Ohio, the Ohio State University, and I'm from Ohio. I'm in trouble. (laughs) I'm sorry to all my Ohio friends. And to you, Ellie. At OU, Ohio University, she received the Martha and Foster Harmon Fellowship for her exceptional talent and dedication to live theater arts. In her time at OU, she helped develop the Creative Solutions Alliance that focused on racism and sexism in a clinical setting and in the university classroom. And in her final year at OU, she helped create and develop the Diversity Inclusion Committee, an inclusion committee for the theater department. She has trained extensively with the CD company over the past 20 years. She has performed throughout parts of the Northeast and on the East Coast, including stages in Manhattan, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Ohio, Kentucky, Texas, and across the pond in the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. She's the movement specialist for the Kentucky Governor's School for the Arts. She served as education director and associate producer for Woodford Theater. She has two child cats, Pepper and Parker, and a lifelong partner, Evan. Lots of alliteration there. (laughs) (laughs) 
you can always spot her with the most fabulously tasteful earrings. What do we have on today? Yep, beautiful. She loves the Art of Conversation and Deep Dive podcasts. She loves studying humans and telling their stories. Ellie is a Gemini. Gemini examine all sides, are extremely curious, and are fascinated with the world. Ellie is quite the entrepreneur, having co-founded Project C Theater, Actors Room Atlanta, and of course, Voices Amplified, formerly known as The Girl Project, which is where our journey begins. <laughs> or began. <laughs> That's... um pretty incredible work did I miss anything no all the hard part in between <laughs> right all the things I got wrong maybe well um there is an awful lot that you have uh done right Ellie Clark it is such a joy to interview you today and it's a joy to be um your partner in crime in this <laughs> I I uh, feel so privileged to get to share um, a workspace with you and a friendship with you um, and our, our joke about being work wives. I, I wouldn't want to be married, you know, to anyone else except for, you know, my husband. <laughs> <laughs> you remember after the year 2013, we survived getting that show up, having created this thing, trying to figure out as we went what it was. And we sat down at the end of the show and I can't remember what I gave you. Maybe I gave you a necklace. Um, was Did that the year I, necklace? I, I think, think so. I gave you the pink girl project necklace. And then you handed me a diamond band. We had matching diamond bands and matching pink necklaces. <laughs> a true marriage. True, true, marriage. true, true marriage. <laughs> So, oh, wow, it's it's the new year, and while we're excited to start a new year, it's already um, been a little crazy over the past few days. Um, how are you holding up with the state of pandemic and storming of capitals and whatnot? Um, how, how are you holding up with all of that? Um. I guess like a lot of folks, I was trying to rally around this 2021 shift. Um, and I think it hit pretty hard January 1st, but I definitely knew on December 31st that it is um, not particularly real, the shift. And I think it hit me harder that... Uh, saying goodbye to 2021, or excuse me, saying goodbye to 2020 was not saying goodbye to being furloughed, having no theaters open, um, not knowing what move I'm going to be able to make next. Uh, I think it actually got heavier for me and a little bit darker. Um, and I think a lot of people blame it on time of year or, you know, for me, I love winter. I love fall. Um, this is a really good time of year for me. I like the climate, probably that um, Irish Scottish background in me. I love the cool kind of uh, moody weather, but yeah, just this presidential shift and the, the um, venom and 
fear and confusion of all of it is pretty heavy for me, it feels like right now. Um, yeah, so I, I, it wasn't a good riddance 2020. It's almost like um, it's getting to an even harder part. So, yeah. Yeah. I certainly think that um, I rode the high a little bit of saying goodbye to 2020, but certainly in the last couple of days, it's it's a struggle. It's a struggle to stay positive and to forge forward, but um, that's all part of it is, is keeping... Uh, putting up the the good fight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, what what kinds of tools have you used throughout this time that that we've been furloughed to, um, you know, just to kind of help get through the tough parts, get through any anxiety, get through the day. I wish that. <laughs> I could say I've been meditating and working out and um, really, I think Evan and I are working towards creating structure for ourselves. Um, I am a personality type that relies heavily on outside structure, not my own internal structure. Um, that's why projects are good for me. That's why I think I thrived in grad school. You know, there was this structure that was given to me um, and and it, it's a positive thing for me to have that set. Um, I, I definitely have certain types of structure that work well for me. Um, <clears throat> but I think just in the past month or two, Evan and I said, we've got to find our joy. So we've been moving our house around, trying to set up to make us feel like the energy is wonderful in our house. Um, we've been cooking new things, uh, things we've never cooked before that take time and energy and thought and grocery lists. Like we usually stick to dinners we love. We order in a lot of the same things when we decide to order in. Um, which we haven't been doing during this pandemic. Um, we haven't had the money to do really, even though I would love to support local business. But I think just, you know, I don't bake and I've been making paleo muffins and cookies and I got an ice cream maker and cooking new dishes like chicken cocoa van and, mm. um, you know, just fun things like that. Mm -hmm. Trying to be creative and reading a lot. I've given myself space to read. Um, I get in bed early, <laughs> turn off the TV and cuddle up with a book. Um, and I really think a lot of my light and joy has come from getting real time with you again after, um, after busy, busy lives and being in different cities and states putting some energy into into work that means a lot to me it it has given i i've had more time to really focus on what means the most to me and where i find value and where i feel valuable so just um taking our work with voices amplified and reimagining our work with the girl project into a a broader mothership name 
while still continuing our work has been something we've talked about for a while. Mm -hmm. We knew, we knew when I went to grad school that things were shifting and the world was shifting and the project was growing so fast. So just taking the last three months to put a, a good amount of my really positive energetic time of day into Voices Amplified has been exciting because usually, you know, I go to work nine hours and I get home and it's late and I'm just trying to get this work done, which is my favorite work. Um, but it's it's been able to take priority, which has been a real light for me. It has. And it's been, I mean, I don't know really even since the beginning that we've had this kind, we've both had this kind of time together. So it is really it's been special and special. super exciting. And um, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the world changing since we started this the our work together, um, which was back really you know talking about it in 2012 and really uh, truly getting it going and performing by 2013. Um, so the world has had some changes what do you what from your perspective has changed to drive our decision to to start to evolve even more I mean we've always evolved the project started in one place and then just continued to evolve but to really make this big shift you know I I can't say that the I can't say that the world has changed um, so much as maybe claim that I've changed or what, you know, once you tr um, embark on a journey and begin to learn, um, like I've said a few times, and I think Jenny reiterated this too, but once, once you learn something, you can't unlearn it. And then it's just like a constant revelation of new information and new ideas. But I think it was a big deal in 2012, maybe just because it was a big deal to us to give 100% of our intention to a group of teenage girls mm. and say, we are going to put all of our energy into giving you an experience to make you feel relevant and seen to give you autonomy from your parents and from maybe some toxic social environments that you may be experiencing in your schools. We are going to eliminate boys from the conversation for a little bit of time so that flirtation and sexual energy and insecurity and a lack of body confidence can maybe relax a little bit. It doesn't go away, but and even me saying that is naive, which maybe I'll get to here, but you know, that first class of girls, I think it was a big deal that we were giving a space like that in Lexington to mm -hmm. teenage female identifying young people. Mm -hmm. um, soon after that, um, you, I think were always interested in moving into middle school. I think you like working with middle schoolers. I hadn't done a lot of work with middle schoolers. Um, and Margaret offering this uh, cross mentor component to our work to take it into the middle school was exciting. But then 
with each class of girls, we were dealing with um, different things like gender identity. And um, from our first class of girls to our last class of girls, we have female identifying students who are now male identifying and looking at this whole idea of gender and me thinking we're taking sexuality of the out of the room because I'm a heterosexual female. And by our final <laughs> year, over half of our class identified as bisexual or homosexual. And I'm like, oh my God, there's so much sexuality in the room, even with a group of teenage girls, you know, and it was a lovely yeah. thing and still a different sexual energy perhaps. And I wouldn't say sexual in the sense of intercourse. I just mean sexual in the sense of hormones are going and there's excitement mm -hmm. and there's giddiness and there's all those things you feel when you have little crushes. So um, I think just the evolution of and how fast we are moving forward. Um, and I would say anybody who's experiencing the bias of it is like, you think this is fast, but it was a big leap for me, even going to grad school to start to embrace they, them and relearning um, my ingrained way of identifying gender. Um, and I was terrified because I had these group of students and the students were really incredible and just relearning my perceptions of things that I had little understanding of. So that's all to say the world has changed so fast or my eyes have been opened and we've learned so much so quickly with, with taking our arts education into advocacy, um, the world may be wasn't changing, but I was changing or we were changing. Um, and my, I was wide awake, you know, as we're looking at the wide awakes and following their work, I was wide awake going, oh my gosh, there's so much more to consider here in our work. Um, I do have some selfishness around, I am a woman. I, I am a female identifying human being and while there is conversations about race and gender identity and gender and classism, and I, I feel a strong passion for feminism mm -hmm. and female stories. Um, so I don't want to lose that, and I'm so scared to lose that, but I do understand that our work is so much more broad than that. Mm -hmm. So while it's exciting to take on something new, I have a still a very strong passion for our work with those teenage girls and middle school aged girls. So, um, but yeah, it's all coming at us so fast and we need to be highlighting any sort of misrepresented or underrepresented voice because that's what fuels us, you know, um, is moving away from that dominant culture storyline that that is really what prompted the Girl Project in the first place. So why not open up our space to, to others as well? Well, speaking of, you know, giving a voice to, to more voices than just what we, we did before with um, the Girl Project and um, identifying females, what... 
I'd love to know more about something that you're bringing to the table, I think, with Voices Amplified, which is your work at OU um, with diversity and inclusion in that committee. Can you tell me and our listeners just a little bit about how that all formed and what your role was in it and what you might be taking from that that you learned and applying it to some of this new work we're doing? Yeah, I would say it's actually the opposite. I think I was bringing the girl project work to, to a group of um, people who were saying we need a diversity and inclusion committee. What do we do? There were, there was a lot happening at OU in the theater department. Um, And of course, it's going to start in the theater department, right, where the conversations are invited, and the people are more diverse there than they are in many places on OU's campus. Um, Just gender neutral bathrooms, uh, not enough plays with, um, with, um, with the diversity that was represented within the student body, you know, so falling into traps of colorblind casting, or we're going to give you the lead. And it's like, this lead isn't written for a black woman, you know, it's written for uh, a white woman or uh, all the things that you're going to encounter. Right. Um, And some really, really vocal undergrad students were just really going after uh, the fight. And uh, the, there were 10 graduate students and we all sat down in our voice class and we said, how do we do this? We had one black man in our class of 10, the only black graduate student in the acting class, um, graduate acting class. And he, he's an incredible man and so thoughtful, so smart. And I said, what I can bring which is very little, is some administrative skills. You know, I can send the emails. I can put together a contractual agreement of how to keep this safe or how to keep the space safe. And I know how to set a code of conduct because of the girl code Mm -hmm. and because of our contractual agreement that we made with our girls coming in that what's said in the room stays in the room. You're going to sign a contract that says that you will do that. Um, and you will not breach that contract. And if you do, here are some repercussions. Um, So really all I could bring was the ability to set a code of how we wanted to conduct ourselves in the diversity and inclusion committee and put those contracts out there and then try to help as we do with the girl project in saying, how do we keep this space um, constructive? because there was a lot of need for people coming to a space and airing their grievances, rightfully so. So how do we take what we're hearing and take it to our, the staff or take it to the teachers or take it to the head of the department, um, which the department was really open to. The department was really open to this being created, it being led by two graduate students to start off in its first year. So really I brought the girl project to that Um, and just kind of helped create a space. But I learned so much um, by just getting to be in the room and listen and hear what the experiences were of people who um, were struggling with the way things were happening. 
and I think that's happening on every university campus. Mm -hmm. That is not to target OU. I think these are all things that are coming to the head in to a head in the university structure. Um, but the now the Creative Solutions Alliance, which I recommended the name Creative Resistance Alliance. <laughs> and Mary Beekler, this wonderful woman, was like, how about solutions instead of resistance? I was like, <laughs> fine. <laughs> but um, that was an incredible experience. Mary has tons of ideas about how to integrate medicine and the arts. And we interviewed um, predominantly Black doctors or Black graduate students or PhDs who were training in medicine. And then we interviewed in a very Appalachian area, right? We interviewed um, Black patients and their experience with doctors in a medical setting. And then the Black doctor's experience in a medical setting. And we conducted interviews about real experiences and meeting these people and hearing their stories. I, I felt baffled most of the time. My jaw was hanging open, just like, that, that happened? That happens still? And I guess you know it happens, but to hear it and be sitting at the table with somebody in 2018 and hearing what you're hearing or 2017. Anyway, so we... Mary is a writer, a playwright as well. And so she developed, um, I, I don't love the word skits, but they were, you know, short skits or short scenes where undergraduate and graduate students in the theater would act out the scenarios for the School of Medicine. And then we would break out groups in the School of Medicine to sit at a table and identify what a microaggression looks like and what a macroaggression mm -hmm. looks like. And they went to their breakout groups and they would work on identifying the problem and coming up with a solution um, and how to confront when an issue does come up. Because when you're a student of medicine working with a doctor, my understanding and what I got was that there's not a lot of room for the student to say, hey, you know, I don't think you handled this well to a doctor that they're working under. Yeah. So. The School of Medicine was so receptive to this kind of training and the actors really loved going in and working with the School of Medicine and creating the scenarios um, and bringing it, bringing it in a way that uh, was very palpable for those students. Um, and then we would have some of the medical students get up in the scenario and try to solve the problem in real time. Um, a patient going at them or them acting as the patient and a doctor saying something inappropriate to them, like, how do you handle this in real time? And let's practice. Let's practice responding to really uncomfortable situations. It was very cool. Um, and it, it was very exciting work. And she's taken that work much further. But I, I learned a lot. We, we also worked with graduate assistants who are teaching in the classroom, but they're also students. So how do you claim your power when um, undergraduates that you're working with or treating you inappropriately or making advances or inappropriate comments, which I definitely dealt with um, sure. uh, with a group of undergrad boys in my very first semester that I was teaching. Um, and I wouldn't say I handled it brilliantly. So getting those graduate assistants up and practicing in front of people, like how would you handle this? 
and putting them on the spot to handle it in real time in a safe space. It was really, really cool work. I love that. Yeah. I wonder, how do you think with, you know, so you have both of those scenarios and then of course our work with the girl project why do you think people trust you with their stories or their you know to open up about these kinds of things what what do you think um i know that's probably a loaded question but why do you think people trust you with those that type of vulnerability I don't know but people tell me all kinds of things all the time sometimes I'm like I don't want to know that um I don't want to keep that secret with you that's a good question I think gosh you and I have talked about this just the um inherently being a mother figure when you're in a when you're in a leadership capacity which when you go to grad school as an actor you are if you're getting paid to go to grad school which I was with the fellowship and with um graduate assistance you're in you're in a leadership role and I was particularly more advanced in age than most of the graduate class there were three of us who were the same age um, but I was the only female that age. And I think I'm incredibly curious and open. And I think my face is really round and I have a really big smile. <laughs> and I'm, I'm outgoing. I'm quick to talk to people. Um, I consider myself mostly an extrovert. So maybe that's why, because I'm available and I'm open and fairly um, uh, open emotionally as well. People see me cry a lot. People see me laugh big. So maybe maybe they feel like they know me a little bit better than they do. Hmm. So speaking of trust, I think it was a big leap of faith. We talked a little bit about it in my interview. Hmm. Um, when we started this work together, we had just uh, wrapped a show Pride and Prejudice. Oh God, I loved it. I did too. <laughs> I did too. I love, um, I love John Jory's adaptations of Jane Austen. Just Thank fabulous. You. So, um, but we really didn't know each other very well, and we, your your mother Trish Clark brought us together, and um, what made you decide? Okay, I think that this is this is something that uh, I could do with this person that I've only known for a few months and did a little play with and taught a couple workshops with what, what made you feel like that that was something you could do? Well, I'm just first and foremost, I am super, super quick to trust people. I would just about trust anybody. I tend to be really positive and see the good in people. And you really have to lose my trust. Um, it is not necessarily challenging to gain because for whatever reason, it's just not. Um, 
but I also know that the the John Jory's adaptations, while they're wonderful, they are insanely challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Sully created a stage of just fabric. And it's like, it's all the same color, it's fabric, but I swear if you walk right there, there's an exit and there's an entrance. And we're like like searching the folds for exits on the stage. Half the time I didn't know where I was. I would exit and be like, where am I supposed to enter in the next five seconds? Because I'm in, you know, it, Elizabeth Bennett's in every scene. She's exiting and entering immediately. Um, but that whole piece, I feel like for the entire cast is so ensemble driven and it takes such an immense amount of trust. Like it doesn't matter if you're Mr. Darcy or if you're like um, chorus member number two, mm-hmm. everybody is doing something all the time. So I think with the way that group worked together, um, there was a lot of integrity developed pretty quickly among all of us. and. It was clear your artistic integrity to me very quickly, in particular, too, because you led some work with us, some uh, Love on Movement work that Sully had asked you to lead. So I had had the experience of you leading me as a teacher while we were rehearsing a play together as actors, which is really fun and absolutely the way Sully works. Yeah, she values everyone in the room um, and will utilize everyone in the room to to showcase their talents and let them contribute in a plethora of ways. But yeah, I just think I I knew the integrity was there because we had done that show together. So then my mom being excited to work with you, Trish Clark, and knowing and having spoken to you about your background in education, I saw it as a really exciting opportunity. There was no reason to not trust that that was there. And I think I've said this too before that I had um, just moved back to Lexington from Manhattan. You had just come to Lexington. Mm -hmm. So there was a chance that either one of us could have just been there for a summer. I really didn't know that eight years later, we, you would be my work wife. Um, (laughs) I just knew that we could create something really cool, develop something really cool. We just didn't know how long it was going to last. And here we are still going. Um, but yeah, I think I think that that trust is built pretty quickly when you're in a rehearsal room with people who work the way you work, you know, um, and different people work different ways. But I think you and I are very different, but I think our work ethic is very similar. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know that that's something um, it is very difficult. Um, I, I think I can easily trust people like you talked about. Um, but I actually, it's, pr- I can, you can lose my trust pretty quickly if you don't have a good work ethic. Mm-hmm. That is something that um, I kind of pride myself on and it's just innately there. And um, it's, it's challenging, I think, when you, when you have such a strong work ethic, it's, I find it challenging to collaborate um, with someone who, who doesn't have so much passion and right or wrong, but there's passion and that I think it all kind of goes together, the passion and the work ethic that you, you just want to make things, you know, they, people, we talked about it. People think I'm the person who gets shit done. Yes. But it's also because of that work ethic and passion and you absolutely I 
completely agree on that work ethic front. And I, I love how, you know, here we are eight, really almost nine years later <laughs> and we've taken all that passion and work ethic and blood, sweat and tears. And we've, we've poured ourselves into this project and this work and we're still here and we are navigating mm. all of this that's going on in the world and we're still pushing through. So I'm curious, what, what has kept you going with our work, even in the difficult times? What has kept you going? It's changing lives. Um, talk about work ethic. Talk about the gift of theater it's hard to know unless you're in the theater world. I think our our work is very elusive. Is that the right word to some people? They're like, what do you do besides like memorize the lines and put on the costume and execute the blocking? <laughs> like, what do you do? <laughs> it's like, oh, that's not even, that's like the starting point, but, or the entry point. Um, every year, I guess, Speaking of work ethic and integrity, you you have to be willing to fail every time. And I bet there was at least a handful of times over the past eight years that we had audience members or artists come see the Girl Project and be like, whew, <laughs> that, was, that must have been hard to direct to that piece or that person or, but to us, or to me, and I will say us, it's not about the end product. It's watching where that person started. Um, and a young girl saying, I'm not gonna be able to say this out loud on stage, I can't do it. I'm gonna give my piece to somebody else to do for me. And then we're at performance time and we're like, oh my God, they never gave it to anybody else. Are they gonna be able to do this? I, I mean, I would say the Girl Project secured for me that I never wanna be a director. <laughs> ever. I feel like when I'm acting, I'm, I have control because I'm on the stage. So if shit goes down, I'm, I can be there to fix it. Being a director and like letting go of the reins once the show started, oh, it makes me sick. Anyway, um, I really feel like the girls every summer, even ones who don't really know what's happened or the change that's occurred in them, they floor me. I, some of the women that we've watched come through that program or girls, whatever, whatever they are, wherever they are in their state of maturity. And then the guest artists, I mean, the people who have agreed to work with us. I know. <laughs> what? <laughs> Which and you're then, going to get to talk to hear most of them. Uh, our ampers are going to get to hear those people and, and learn just like we learned. I know. And we've been saying it since 2013. We're like, wait, our audience isn't getting these guest artists. Only right. our girls are. This isn't fair, but we can't afford to fly them in every time we want to. Um, we got to fly them in to work with the girls and create the work. But oh man, watching the stories come out of the mouths of young people that they're terrified to speak 
and watching the light flood in as they're speaking it. I don't think there's much greater reward than that. For those brief moments, every time I feel a complete and utter deep responsibility for the lives and stories of those young people. And it, it just like lets, lets light in in a way that not much else does to me because creating change in someone else or offering someone else the ability to find freedom from the toxicity of what our dominant culture can do to you is a beautiful thing. Um, and it, I mean, it ignites a fire in me, like nothing else just really ignites me. Have you learned anything about yourself during this time in our advocacy work? Oh, I'm a wreck. That's what I've learned. I'm like, (laughs) you know, I, we put it in our pivot statement, do as I say, not as I do, right? I am so not good at, I am so good at advocating for other people, but not so great at advocating for myself, perhaps. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I think, I think I learned the true meaning of being a role model. And while I am not an incredible one, always, I've learned for Ellie, ouch for Ellie. <laughs> well, we're imperfect, right? So it's that imposter syndrome. Like yeah. we talk about that imposter syndrome, like, oh, I'm not a Roma. Every time something awful happens in the room, I'm like, oh, who's the adult in the room who's gonna take care of this? And I'm like, ah shit, that's me. <laughs> um n- not it. I like that when I'm parenting most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who's gonna deal with this? Um, but I think I've learned. While I have probably, I would fight anybody if they told me their female role models were better than mine. Um, My mom and my aunts and my teachers and just women that I consider friends who are much older and much wiser than me, uh, I see where mistakes were made sometimes too. Just I'm going to self-deprecate. Um but I would never ever allow you to self-deprecate, right? I'm gonna look in the mirror and call myself hideous. But if I ever heard you say that, I would, you know, I would be so upset with you. So I, I think I've learned most how much words have influence, particularly the way we choose to talk about ourselves. Um, and how hard it is to get rid of those habits of the way we talk about ourselves. I mean, Evan and I don't fight, really. We just don't. We argue, we disagree, we get on each other's nerves sometimes, but when I look in the mirror and I'm like, ugh, Evan will (laughs) lie, I'm like, don't you dare make that sound in front of the mirror. But I just, I think I've learned the power of words and the power of being a role model and while you think, oh, well, I'm just talking about me, so it doesn't matter, um, young people mimic and friends mimic. Like, you have a certain way of talking with a friend. Like, I, I don't want to be around the friends who usually I'm just complaining and 
uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm more and more wanting the people in my life who want to talk about creative things or get something done or plan for the future rather than dwell in the past or on hard things. So uh, this is a long answer, but I think just the responsibility of being a role model or a parent or a mentor and that if we expect something of young people and want better for them, then we have to offer that same thing to ourselves. Yeah. And that is the only way to teach them to do those things, telling somebody to do something, but, you know, being, being the model of that thing. You talked, well, I want to talk about a couple of, of things from your last um, answer. Let's talk about Evan. Because, you know, I, uh, I see how, how your relationship is and how supportive you are of each other. And I'd love to know a little bit about that. And, and I'd love to also just know about your choices and expectations that are typically placed on women, you know, to be married and have kids and, you know, what that how that factors into your relationship and and your choices and if you feel any of those kinds of pressures to kind of follow suit with you know what everybody else seems to think is the the route to go you know I don't which is interesting because I I had boyfriends in my 20s that I boyfriends, maybe one that I thought I was going to marry. Um, thank God that's <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh, I don't feel those kind of pressures. You know, I will only speak for myself. I don't speak for anybody else who makes any decision um, because the, they're so deeply personal, but I've never been with someone so who so clearly from from the moment we went on our first date it was he made it clear that I was 100% his world and he did he did something very um he 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 just it was clear you know, and I guess when when someone allows you to be the center of their universe, I mean, I'm not I'm not sure what a wedding is besides a lot of money and a big celebration. Mm -hmm. And the not having kids thing, you know, I always say my sister did that for me. She had two perfect children, so I get to play with them and give them back when I, <laughs> when I'm done. <laughs> Um, and those children really are perfect. They are the center of our universe. So I thought I would, I always thought I would have kids, but it just hasn't become a priority. And I am a strong advocate for adoption. So if Evan and I ever decide we want a child, and um, since I'm at geriatrics, present pregnancy age. I hate that word so much. You said we're going to have a whole episode on geriatrics pregnancy. Geriatric pregnancy. We're going to uh, have Jenna Hoban on. <laughs> yeah, um, so I think, I, I think we can have a child if we decide to, because there's so many children out there who need homes. 
So yeah, I, I don't mind being asked those questions. I always feel like people have good intentions and it's usually people who love Evan and I and our relationship who want to know because it, it's never out of spite that anyone asks those questions. So no, no, I think anyone who spends any time with the two of you sees the the just unconditional love that's there and and uh it, it just goes to show i mean a piece of paper is a piece of paper and i think it has uh, does have a lot to do with logistics and this is you know coming from someone who's been married <laughs> um <laughs> but certainly i i know with uh with eric when you know, I, I went into that being like, not getting married. Nope. Not doing it. Not doing it again. Nope. Not happening. But there were just some logistical, like insurance situations. And I was like, ah, hell. (laughs) Yeah. And it's the privilege of our heterosexuality. It is. It Um, is. And we get to take advantage of a system because we live a hetero lifestyle and it just feels so wrong that those freedoms haven't and aren't always offered to everyone. So I That's guess another episode we're going to have to, yeah. we are definitely going to have to remember that because right. that, is, that is so very true. Um, so we talked a lot about your mom, Trish Clark, and for our ampers who have read our pivot statement or history <laughs> or anything, you're going to see Trish Clark, Trish Clark, Trish Clark. It's like Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. <laughs> so um, being Trish Clark's daughter, I often think about you and my own daughter, Emma, because she, um, and and my son, Jackson, both of them, but I think maybe more her just because we're both identifying females, but um. I think about you a lot with her because she has growing up. She definitely had some really great things, I think, um, come her way because of being my daughter. But then I do think that she definitely had some struggles um, along the way from being my daughter and, and watched her just try to figure all of that out and, and, I think really just recently start to truly claim her independence, which I am so thrilled for her. And I, I wonder, you know, what that was like for you, um, you know, being Trisha's daughter and kind of, you know, she's a, a Lexington legend for sure. Um, what that, what that was like. I, um, It really was, uh, it's a privilege of a lifetime to have um, a mother who is so, so respected and so loved and so energetic and so creative and playful and did I say generous? Can I say generous like 500 times? Um, uh, generous to a fault, right? With time, energy, love, money, anything. We never had money, so I don't think money. But um, she, 
growing up, I never felt like I was in a shadow of Trish Clark. I just, like any teenager, wanted that autonomy of I earned this myself. Mm. I never wanted to earn anything because of who my mother was. But I think it was so clear from a very young age that my whole life was going to be theater. I mean, I inherently, in my deepest part of my being, am a, am a theater person. I am an actor. And so I think because it was so clear, it was just a matter of my mom giving me space to make my own choices, which she always did. Not a stage mother. Kept her mouth shut when it came to casting with with me or um, would stay in the car when I would go into audition. She would just drop me off. Um, things like that. But it, it was such a really incredible community growing up in Lexington that that whole community really lifted me up as a young person needing that too. And I think really tried to let me have that autonomy as well and challenged me and set high expectations for me. And, you know, the hardest part was my mom. No, that's not true. The, the more interesting part was my mom taking on other students. Like when we hung out in high school, we hung out at my house with my mom (laughs) and all the theater kids, you know, and, I was like, oh, well, why don't we go to another place? And they're like, well, is your mom coming? And I'm thinking, can I just hang out with my friends without my mom for once? It didn't really matter, but, um, you know, they wanted my mom there. Everybody wanted my mom there because she was fun and brings so much energy and is so open, you know. So it was a privilege. And she, she picked up children along the way. She has five or six, maybe ten students from her years and years of teaching who really treat her like a mother you know she talks to them on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and holidays and Thanksgiving and um, New Year's and really look to her as a parental figure so you know it's it's offered me the opportunity to have a bigger family and more love so uh, there's nothing I would I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world she's Phenomenal. And she's earned her reputation as a legend because she has worked so hard to keep theater alive and thriving in that Lexington community. And she is not the only one, but she works really fucking hard at it um, and uh, sacrificed so much of herself and her health to giving everything to any theater she was working for, even at the high school level. I mean, she was taking kids to Edinburgh Fringe Festival for years from her high school. Groups of kids doing fundraisers where they were raffling off cars, you know? I mean, you're talking about real deal. We are creating art. We are doing this thing and we're doing it all the way. No matter where she is, you could put her in the smallest town in the most conservative place. And she's like, this is what we're doing. (laughs) Um, She has so much integrity around her work. She's a perfectionist. Um, and she's smart and she's super creative. She thinks outside the box. People are just drawn to her and, um, oh, it's a, yeah, it's really a privilege. I learn, I have learned so much from my mother. Good God. She's, she's something else. 
makes me want to cry. Just I know. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, you had mentioned earlier. Uh, you talk. You hit a little bit on this, and I want to circle back to it. But how people's perceptions of you. Um, you had talked about you felt like you know some people maybe had a different perception of you than than who you truly are. Um, talk to me a little bit more about that. I think I confuse myself. I think it's a Gemini thing. Sometimes I'm like, I I'm not what you think I am, and other times I'm like, yes, I am. Um, I think I got a lot growing up that I was pretty intimidating which was hard for me to comprehend because I always felt so insecure, right? That um, I, I didn't understand how my, and I didn't really understand that I have a really big personality. Mm. I still struggle with that, but I think my personality is big. Um, and so I think, because my energy is big and maybe I had less of a perception, I, I, I didn't really understand that, that people found me intimidating or, um, and I hated that. So it made me want to shrink, you know, it made me want to be like, oh, so I have to go in and be really, really nice and soft and I'll talk quieter. <laughs> And um, be self-deprecating so that people don't find me intimidating. Um, but then I get in the room and start doing the work and I'm like, nobody can stop me. I will bulldoze my way through every single one of you motherfuckers if I have to, to get this done and to make you, you will succeed. This will be brilliant. Um, we are going to do this. I will sit. I Anyway, um, so I understand it, but it, it baffled me a little bit when I was younger and I didn't like it. And I think it caused me to want to shrink myself a little bit, but I just not necessarily good at that. So after a while I was like, fuck it. If I'm, if I'm intimidating, I'll wrap my arms around every person in the room as soon as I enter the room. Um, but I, I've gotten past that a little bit. I, I think it, it's interesting when, you know, people, people say that they find you intimidating and I struggle with that. You know, my kids joke with me all the time about how, you know, they make sure to inform me that all of my students or people that I work with are just a little bit afraid of me. I'm like, well, I don't, why? <laughs> and then, you know, but then people will say, well, it's not that we're afraid of you. You're actually a really warm person. You're just a little bit intimidating. And, uh, you know, I've, I've started to just embrace it too, because it's just like, okay, well, I don't think it's because I'm mean. I don't, I don't think I'm a mean person. Um, I hope it's just that intimidation is coming from respect. And I definitely think for you that that is the case. It's, it's a respectful kind of intimidation. Hmm. So what, what makes you feel, you talked a little bit about just kind of um, 
feeling insecure and all of that, what, what makes you feel vulnerable? Are there specific things that bring out those vulnerabilities? Yeah, definitely. Um, for such a big personality and I will say anything at any time, which you definitely know. Um, it doesn't matter who's around. I just say things that I think and that come to my mind and love to ask questions inappropriate or not. And um, I really, for someone with such a big personality who seems so bold, hate, hate confrontation. It makes me sick. I will avoid it at all costs. Um, and it, it makes me feel vulnerable and it will put me on repeat in my head. Like, like just that dreadful, I should have said this. I should, I know post, post confrontation, everything that should have been said, the exact appropriate way to handle it. Um, but in the moment, it's really complicated when, even when, oh, this is a good girl project learning lesson when inappropriate things are said to other people, when they're said to me, all the way up to, I don't agree with this and I can't let it happen if my name's gonna be on it. Um, so I'm out or we're not doing it. Uh, and it's really challenging for me and I hate that. Mm. I, I really can't stand instigators, but I do like people who don't fear confrontation with other human beings. And sure, having confrontation with some people is exciting to me. And I'm like, yeah, bring them. <laughs> and then other people, um, I'm just not interested. And I think, I think it has to do with um, um, knowing when someone respects you and you're confronting them and realizing when someone has no respect for you, so is it worth confronting them? And then what really sucks is when you think someone respects you and then you realize mid-confrontation, oh, maybe maybe they don't actually. Um, so I, I think all that scares me. It's hard for me to confront my family. Um, you know, I have a very conservative family and we do not talk politics in my family, we just don't. Um, and it's hard for me to confront that. So, so yeah, confrontation makes me feel very vulnerable and I'm not good at it. And I want to be better at it. I've gotten better at it, but I have a long way to go. What, what kinds of things keep you up at night? Oh, usually an idea. <laughs> like I called you the other day and I was like, we haven't called the two people we should be calling for this podcast and literally laid in bed thinking of interview questions for them, doing the interview in my bed. I'm like, what am I doing? We'll yeah. call them. We'll do the interview. Why is this all I can think of right now? We have six guests already lined up or eight before we can even invite anybody else. Um, so ideas will keep me up like nobody's business. Um, a rehearsal, like a good long rehearsal, trying to go to bed afterwards, just reeling in my head ideas or thoughts or, and the other thing that keeps me up is um, anxiety. Uh, I'll have a lot of repetitive dreams. I had them when I was waiting tables, like 
I would be in this endless cycle of waiting tables, which is really hell. Um, <laughs> or work like um, work anxieties will come up, particularly at busy times of year. And I, I will, I will go on repeat in my head and just the same thoughts become so repetitive and I can't get them out of my head. And I, I'm an adult and I'm still scared of the dark. And I live in a city that has, you know, a higher crime rate than Lexington now, Atlanta, definitely, because it's a big city. Um, and I'll have anxiety about if my alarm goes off in the middle of the night. Like, what am I going to do? What's yeah. the first thing I would put in front of the door? What if they're coming through my bedroom window? Like crazy anxious thoughts before bedtime, particularly if Evan's not here, um, yeah. particularly when I'm alone in my home, you know, falling asleep can be hard. So those kind of ang anxious thoughts or fears keep me awake at night. Well, the reverse of that, what makes you laugh so hard that it's embarrassing? <laughs> Evan dancing. <laughs> Evan dancing, yes. Evan so much. He's so sweet and he's so not good at it. <laughs> and he's so sexy, you know? He has this incredibly muscular body. I mean, I don't know if you think he's sexy. I think he is so sexy. I think Evan is so sexy. <laughs> he is. You should see him, I mean, without his clothes on. He's very sexy. And <laughs> he has this athletic build if he's listening outside the door. <laughs> he has this athletic build and we'll turn on music and I'll start dancing. And I always try to just be really supportive. And I'm like, does that feel good in your body? <laughs> I've become such a movement teacher. I'm like, so does that like, does that feel good? Because that can't feel good. <laughs> it's so not right, whatever's happening. So that makes me really and it's gotten to a point where he uses it to make me happy, which is like the most selfless thing in the world. He loves to turn on music and just dance around the kitchen. And, you know, he doesn't give a shit. Um, <laughs> so it is like our most joy. And sometimes really late at night when we're drinking wine or a cocktail, we will get the giggles over the stupidest. <laughs> I mean, okay. utterly absurd stuff that, uh, <clears throat> you know, Evan laughing is my favorite thing. Him getting a really good laugh going just lights me up. I love it. It's my favorite thing. So yeah, Evan probably, but his dancing in particular. Awesome. I don't get in trouble. <laughs> so I'm curious. I, I want to ask you a, just a, a couple more questions about, about theater. What's a favorite role that you have played? Oh gosh. I, yeah, I really struggle with this one. Um, you know, because I created a theater company, there's a point in your life as an actor where you say, I, I know what roles I need to be playing. Um, so I had the opportunity to choose some of those roles and, um, and then I've had people put me in roles that I was like, I cannot play this. And, I, I would have to say Cleopatra um, just because of the impossible task of taking on Shakespeare's Anthony and Cleopatra. I mean, it spans years. You're leaving the stage and coming back in being like, okay, there's been a war. I've had, a, I've had twins. 
I, and you're going from one scene to the next with a war and twins and a life of ruling, you know, Egypt. Um, so I, I would say she was such a massive challenge and she, she changed me. She, I was different after playing her. Um, I tattooed her name down my spine in Greek. She changed me so much. That summer changed me. There was an event soon after that summer that went from really high to really low, really fast. Um, so the whole experience wrapped up in learning from her and this female ruler and the power that was necessary for her to even be a woman in the role that she was in and reading the books about her and how smart, so smart she was. Um, and just effervescent and powerful and the courage it must have taken to lead the way she did in those times. It, it was fascinating to attempt to play the role. Where do you think theater is going to go from here post pandemic? post um, uh, racial reckoning? <clears throat> I don't know. I'm, there's so much work to do. I feel really lucky to be in Atlanta for that reason. Um, but I think it's going to require letting go of some of our old favorites, you know, that <laughs> we're like, yeah, well, it might be problematic, but it's it's got a really good lesson. It's a really good story. Um, I think for a long time, the theater world has needed more playwrights, more playwrights of color, more female playwrights. And I think we need to be investing a lot of time and energy into supporting those playwrights and giving money for those playwrights to create work because I know there's a lot of stories out there to be told, but um, we're going to need more of them. And we're going to have to be reading new plays and new works and approaching creating our work in a different way um, and I think it's possible uh, but if we haven't been nurturing those artists for so long and all of a sudden we're like oh well we have to get them on stage we have to tell their story but we've been denying them the opportunity to have those opportunities then we have a lot of work to do to earn their respect enough for them to even desire to work with us in the first place. Yeah. Right? I, um, if we so long have been casting in them in roles, asking them to erase their identity, saying, oh, well, it's colorblind, or um, don't worry about that. Like, uh, it, it's such a such a denial of who they are 
and it's erasure and it's, it's evil. It's not, it's not nice. And so I think there's going to be a lot of earning trust. I think there's going to be a lot of, um, a lot of folks who have been in power for a long time who are going to have to relinquish that. And I think it's going to be challenging Mm -hmm. for them. I think it's time for some retirements of people holding on to 10 year jobs and taking advantage of tenure to stay in when they're long past the opportunity for retirement, but no diversity can come into that university until space is made for them. Right. So being a smart person and saying it's time to make space. And even if that means me going away and somebody taking my space. And I think that's really hard. Um, Particularly when you've built a program or you've built a theater. Um, But but space has to be made. And I think I think it's going to be challenging. And we just have to hope that people want to be in the space with us, you know, uh, that's what scares me a little bit. It's like, oh no, look, I'm, I'm doing this for you. And it's like, what makes you think I want to work with you? Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot of healing to be done and a lot of conversations to be had. And I think learning how to have those conversations um, and being prepared for that kind of confrontation and somebody saying you got this wrong is something we all need to be prepared to take on and face and confront. Thank you for all of that truth. And um, I'm going to start to to wrap up this first section here, Ellie, but I've got a couple of questions for our ampers so they can uh, kind of follow your path and the new things that you're doing with your time these days with reading all the reading that you're doing what are you reading right now and what are you is it is it enlightening you in any way oh my god (laughs) um I have to I have to read pages and then go back and read them to make sure that as I'm moving forward I I, I'm reading so you want so you want to talk about race so that 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 book is really exciting I also um read a book that shook me called Educated. And um, it changed me in a lot of ways. But it's another woman's story talking more about class and education. And it it was like reading a fiction book. I I couldn't believe what I was reading, right? So, um, but I couldn't put it down. Whereas sometimes... (laughs) Oh, man. But so sometimes with so you want to talk about race, I'm like, I need to put this down. And I, you know, I've got to digest and make sure I'm picking all this up. Um, So yeah, those, those two books have been my last two favorites. Oh, and I'm also reading Sapiens, which is just fucking incredible. Um, I would recommend that book to anybody. Okay. Yeah. What is it again? Sapiens. Sapiens. Okay. Talking about humanity and the evolution of human in real talk. It's so cool. It's so cool. It's a page turner and it's about sapiens. <laughs> mm-hmm. Adding it to my list. Yeah. What's your superpower? Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to go with, 
Um, I think I'm going to go with maybe something I've said a few times today. Um, I have no, I, I think this is an impossible question. I've told you this, but <laughs> maybe my superpower, well, empathy, if it is a superpower or could be a superpower is probably maybe up there, but I would say curiosity is my superpower too. I am so endlessly curious. If somebody would sit down and let me ask them 5,000 questions, I would. I love to talk about all the things you're not supposed to talk about. I love to talk about the things you are. I'm just fascinated by people and the world. So perhaps my curiosity is my superpower. I love that. I love that superpower, Ellie Clark. <laughs> so we're going to move on to our campfire section. Campfire is a moment for our guests to share inspiration with our listeners and us. The campfire represents storytelling in an intimate setting that is unique to the people who are present. In our activism work, we refer to this as the closed container or circling. What are you going to share today, Ellie? <laughs> I've changed it up. Um, I am going to read, um, I'm going to read uh, something from Anne Bogart that's brilliant. My good friend, the writer Charles L. Mee Jr. helped me to recognize the relationship between art and the way societies are structured. He suggested that as societies develop, it is the artists who articulate the necessary myths that embody our experience of life and provide parameters for ethics and values. Every so often the inherited myths lose their value because they become too small and confined to contain the complexities of the ever transforming and expanding societies. In that moment, new myths are needed to encompass who we are becoming. These new constructs do not eliminate anything already in the mix. Rather, they include fresh influences and engender new formations. The new mythologies always include ideas, cultures, and people formerly excluded from the previous mythologies. So deduces me the history of art is the history of inclusion. National and international cultures as well as artistic communities are currently undergoing gigantic shifts in mythology. Technological and corporate revolutions have already changed the way we communicate, interact, live, make art, and articulate our ethics and values. The myths of the last century are now inadequate to encompass these new experiences. We are living in the space between mythologies. It is a very creative moment brimming with possibilities of new social structures, alternate paradigms, and for the inclusion of disparate culture influences. I believe that the new mythologies will be created and articulated in art, in literature, architecture, painting, and poetry. It is the artists who will create a livable future through their ability to articulate in the face of flux and change. Thank you for that. I needed to hear that. Can I, can I read one more? Can I read one more? Sure. So in, in light of, I have like six bookmarked, but in light of me saying, you know, a lot of people think our work is elusive or don't know what we do. Um, I think Anne in What's the Story, um, her book, What's the Story, she has a section called Heat. 
I love this section. Um, but it's talking about the relationship between training, rehearsal, and performance, and people usually only see the performance. So she says, what is the point of all the discipline, hard work, and training? What does the training and preparation have to do with rehearsing a play and with performance? The training and the discipline and the sweating and the study and the memorizing are not the end point, but rather the entry. The preparation is what gives one the permission to take up space and make wild, surprising, and untamed choices. In the quest for artistic freedom and agency, it is impossible to walk into a rehearsal room uninhibited, unburdened. We are generally chained down by habits and assumptions and by fear of the new. Permission is what we earn by the sweat, training, preparatory work, and dedication. Mm. She's so smart. I mean, her words are so on point. Anyway, I have like six more marked, but those are two of my favorites. That's fantastic. And like I said, so, so inspiring for the journey that we are about to venture on and just some of my other uh, entrepreneurial journeys that I'm embarking on. That first passage really uh, spoke to me a lot. So thank you for sharing that. And hopefully mm -hmm. it inspired some of our listeners to read that creative. Book. This is the time. It's the time. It's our time. So we're going to finish up with a little uh, rapid response for one Ellie Clark. Are you ready? Um, yeah. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> okay. If you could choose another profession, what would you be? A politician. Whoa! Not really a dancer, but maybe a politician. <laughs> I just I want to get in there and fuck shit up I right now. I behind that. Ugh. Can I be your campaign manager? Yes. Okay. Definitely. You can get, no, shit, I get done. shit done. <laughs> um, if you could have wisdom or riches, which would you choose? Wisdom. <laughs> your attitude toward the world in one word. Fuck it. Fuck okay. it. Right. I mean, it's what we used in our Meisner training. That's what they would always say right before we were doing our work. It's like, you've done the work. Now, fuck it. Just get out there and see what happens. You got to just do it. You can't let all the fear stand in your way. Okay. What would you once said about you after you are gone? Damn, she was fierce. Mm. I think you're well on the road to that. <laughs> What is your first thought in the morning? Oh. <laughs> I'm really not a morning person. And Margaret really ruined this morning because she's so mindful. She thinks about her breath. I think about, um, I have to, my first thought is I have to get out of bed. I have to do this. I have to, I cannot hit snooze anymore. I got to get up. You know, since we've been asking this question and I have, when I wake up in the morning, I have been recognizing, okay, what is the first thing that you think when you wake up in the morning? And mine also too, at least the past few nights, because I haven't been getting a lot of sleep is, oh shit, I got to get up. <laughs> I'm going to, now every morning, I'm going to think about Margaret and try to like, just center myself around my breath. Yeah, gosh. <laughs> oh. 
Um, who's one person that you think should be brought back from the dead? Breonna Taylor? Mm. George Floyd? Ahmaud Aubrey? <clears throat> God or no God? God. Uh, I, I'm I'm going to have to go Jenny with this. Spiritual. God. Yeah, so God. God. What would you be doing with your life if money was no issue? I think I would be producing so much theater. Um, just constantly finding way to give people money to do good work. Uh, and yeah. I would. Good stuff. Yeah, just make art and set up funding for artists who are fucking doing it right and doing it well, telling mm. stories. Yeah. What's your favorite season? Fall. Mm -hmm. Oh, show. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ellie, for helping us to have a little deep dive into Ellie Clark. <laughs> It was not meant to sound in any way, any way. <laughs> I love a deep dive into Ellie. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Um, I am so excited for all of you Ampers to uh, talk with us a little bit more, hear us and our silliness and our seriousness and our fabulous guests that we have coming on and Jenny and Margaret joining us and Kennedy and um, thank you, Ellie, for being vulnerable with us today. Thank you. I'm really excited too. All right, everyone. Thanks for getting amped with us. If there are questions that we didn't ask that you want answered, be sure to send them our way. We are Voices Amped on Instagram and Facebook. I don't think we have a Twitter, but you know, there's two other ways that you can get in contact with us. So we'll be good, right? Voices Amped is part of the arts initiative Voices Amplified. You can check us out on our website at www.voicesamplified.net. Our team is Ellie Clark, Vanessa Becker-Weig, me, Jenny Benavides, and Dr. Margaret McGladry, with production assistance by alumni and intern Kennedy Johnson. This podcast is possible in part due to a generous grant from the Kentucky Foundation for Women. We want to thank Lauren Rourke for the badass podcast art, Tiffany DuPont Novak for our Fierce Voices Amplified logo, and Vanessa Davis for our beautiful underscore, I'm doing okay. You can check out her music at Songwriter Vanessa on Instagram. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope to see you next week. Voices Amped is generously sponsored by the Kentucky Foundation for Women. For more information about our guests, podcast content, or if you want to learn more about Voices Amplified, follow our advocacy work, or support our 2021 independence campaign. You can visit our website, voicesamplified.net, or visit us on Facebook or Instagram. And remember, be curious, be courageous, take up space, and make some noise. <laughs>